We are full of brokenness, weakness, and we are full of ego at times. No matter how strong we might think that we might be, no matter how much of an advocate for something that we might think that we are, no matter how loud we might think our voice might be in the system today, the political system or whatever it might be, the Lord has a way of putting us in check. Maybe the Lord is challenging the faithful and the devout. Maybe the Lord is trimming the hedges to see who will stand for him when times get tough. If I were to look across the landscape of the world today, I would be quickly reminded the events of the world today, the confusion, the uncertainty. I would be quickly reminded of the fragility of humanity. But then I'm also reminded at the same time of how short life really is. In fact, James writes this in chapter 4 and verse 14. The very well-known verse that speaks about the fragility of humanity itself. When you look at the life of humanity on the scope of eternity, it doesn't even scratch the surface. In fact, James says, yet you, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, a mist that appears for a little time and boom, vanishes and is gone. You know, recently I know that we have had a bit of a scare from this virus. And I think it was yesterday or Friday, the, the numbers for Martin County were in the triple digits again. And but I want to say this to our folks in, in our community and in our church. I want, to, I want to encourage you a little bit. Can I do that? Do we need some encouragement? I want to say this for everyone who was involved, whether you were in quarantine or whether you had the coronavirus yourself or maybe it ran through your home. I don't, I don't know. I want to encourage you on this. I want to, first, I want to say I hope that you do not regret your time spent interacting with one another. And you do not regret the time that we spent together learning and sharing the good news. The last time that we were together, when we were working through Mark chapter 13, the beginning of those verses, what a beautiful, beautiful time of worship that was. The last time we were together, and I do not regret that one single bit. You know, we spent two days in vacation Bible school. It had to be cut short. But I don't doubt the power of my God. Never doubt the power of the Lord who has the power to change lives, to change people's life for the good, even if it was two days. The Lord can start a revival. He doesn't need a whole week. The Lord can stoke the fires of revival. He can do it in a day. He can do it in a minute. And for our youth who shared that Sunday morning, I know that the Lord had done a good work within that group while they were at Amfuge spending time together. And we heard as they shared their testimony across the front of this uh, uh, podium here, how they shared how the Lord was working. Do not regret your time spent together. Build upon what the Lord has been doing all along. 
But I do know at the same time that the state of the world that we are in, still in the midst of the throes of a pandemic, it makes one consider the end of the age. I can't tell you the countless amount of times I've had people ask me, is this the end of the world? See, the last time we dove into Mark chapter 13, one of the questions that was asked is, is this the end of the world? And I, I actually believe it is ingrained within the human nature and our brokenness, our curiosity even. Maybe it's even our ego or the fear of the unknown that we as human beings, broken as we are, we look towards the end of the world. It's almost ingrained within us, especially when there is a, a catastrophic or calamitous event on the horizon. Even unbelievers ask, is this the end of the world? But can I share some further encouragement with you? I can tell you with assurance, with certainty, that Jesus is coming again. I can tell you with assurity that not only is Jesus coming again, but he is going to right the wrongs of this world. He is going to abide with his children for all eternity. He is going to crush the darkness of sin and sorrow forevermore. He is going to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we will reign with him forever. The Bible tells us in Revelation verse 21 that he will wipe away all tears of sorrow and that he is making all things new. Do you believe that? Now, Jesus gave a few signs already in, in the beginning of chapter 13. He said that many will lead you astray. Check. He said that you will hear of wars and rumors of war. Check. He said nation will rise against nation. They will rise against one another. Check. Execute you for the sake of Jesus. The gospel will be preached to the nations, and that is being checked today. Family members will rise against one another. Check and being checked. But I'll ask you if you will. Hopefully, you have your Bible in hand or before you. If not, we've got the verses on the screen for to you for you to read along with me and to internalize the Word of God. To get the word of God down within our ever being. So I'll ask you, let's stand together as we honor the reading of the word of God. The infallible, inerrant word of God that is precise for theological precision. Let's read together. Verse 14, Jesus saying, but when you see... The abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be. Let the reader understand. That is you, by the way. Then let those who are in, who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn his uh, back for his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, uh, pray that they may not, happen in the, may, may not happen in the winter. For in those days, 
there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the very elect. Be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Lord, we do ask you uh, that you will bless the reading of this word. To our heart and to our mind, Lord, we ask you that you will speak to us today. Help us to grow in our faith and knowledge. Help us to have our assurance in you. And uh, Lord, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today is the second part of the series on last things with this question, is this Antichrist? Uh, or we could also say, is this an Antichrist? Or is this the Antichrist? I want you to remember something that we said about biblical interpretation really of any biblical text is it really not just on the basis of studying scripture but really highlighted in what we call eschatological interpretation remember we said eschatology was the study of in thing in time events last thing events so as we study last thing events there is a basic tenet a basic understanding uh, of what we must really take away when we are interpreting and that is it must speak to the immediate audience first. So what is it going to say to Peter, James, Andrew, and John? What is it going to say? What is it going to say to them? It must speak to them first. The problem that I have with the witch hunt for Antichrist over the ages, the problem that I have with people over the ages trying to identify Antichrist really from well-meaning people is this. Why are we so invested, why are we invested so much in trying to identify Antichrist when we have the real Christ? Some Christ followers spend more time trying to play investigative reporter looking into the identity of Antichrist than they do searching the scriptures to see the real Christ. As the old saying goes, if you want to see a counterfeit, what do you do? You study the genuine article. You study the real thing. So the, the question was asked, how does the FBI spot counterfeiters? How does the FBI spot counterfeit money? And yes, the FBI does, uh, they do investigate. Now there's another branch of the government that does investigate counterfeit. But how does the FBI, or how historically did the FBI spot counterfeit bills? 
The most popular answer to this question is they train by studying the original intensely. When a counterfeit is presented, the flaws will be obvious because they have spent countless hours looking at the authentic. Can that be said of us? That we have spent countless hours studying the authentic Christ, the Lord of our life. And how do you know if an antichrist or the antichrist is present in the world today? Well, we know because we have studied the authentic and genuine article. You look and you study the original Christ. There's a few things I want to bring out in this text this morning. A couple of points I want to make amongst many as we transition through these verses. I believe as time grows nearer to the Lord's return, I believe the church universal is going to endure persecution across the globe. And it is during this time as persecution presses in upon the church of the living God in Christ Jesus, I believe that great distress and persecution draws us closer to the Lord. Persecution draws us nearer. Adversity draws us nearer to the Lord Jesus. You might say, well, I believe the Lord will rapture his church. As the old saying goes amongst Reformed theologians, I pray that the, uh, there is a pre-tribulation rapture and live as if it's post so we pray that the Lord will rapture his church. We know that the Lord is coming for his church. We know that is a fact. It is in scripture, but we live as if we are going to work through the tribulation period. I begin to think to myself, what do the people think now? In those places where there is heavy persecution, are they looking and saying, Lord, we thought you were coming for your church. We thought you were coming to rapture your church. And people across the globe are dying for their faith more today than they have ever in history. Great distress draws us closer to the Lord. It, it seems like this is a lesson that we should know by now, doesn't it? This seems like a lesson that every one of us here ought to know. But it is because of our struggle with our own brokenness. It is because we struggle with brokenness and sin and we struggle with our own ego that the lesson is easily forgotten. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, when you see this one called the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand, that's you, that's me. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, I think it must be noted, since this message is from the Lord Jesus to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, that the abomination of desolation had already occurred. The abomination of desolation had already stood at one time in history in the place that he ought not to have stood. In fact, 
we know, let the reader understand, it informs you. We are the reader. It informs us that the message has a dual purpose, if not more. We would say that this prediction of the Lord Jesus is a telescopic view. It says something to the disciples, and it says something to us down through the ages. What does it say to Peter, James, John, and Andrew? And what does it say to the early church through history? And what does it say to the reader, you and I? It informs us that this message has multiple purposes. In short, it serves as a warning of something to come that is similar to something that happened in the past. This would be an event that the disciples would have, they would have been familiar with. Jesus, as soon as he said, the abomination of desolation in the, in the old passages, Old Testament passages, they would have said, yes, we remember we, re we remember that. Three references from Daniel. Daniel chapter uh, 8 and verse 13. Daniel 9, 27. Uh, also chapter 12 and verse 11. They speak of an event of an abomination of desolation. A person standing in a place that they ought not to be. In a place that was consecrated to be holy. It is speaking of a time from Daniel's day. In the intertestamental period, that is when Antiochus of Epiphanes would sacrifice a pig in the Holy of Holies in an attempt to desecrate the Holy Temple. Now, in a way that Lucifer, as you know in the Bible, Lucifer in the book of Isaiah, the king of Babylon, is likened to or synonymous with Satan. The same can be said for Antichrist of Epiphanes as being a prototype for the Antichrist to come. Just by way of background, Antichrist Epiphanes was a Greek king who ruled over Syria from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C. He is most famous for leading up to what is called the Maccabean Revolt. That is, in the Catholic version of the Bible, uh, the book of Maccabees, we find in those pages, that is where our Jewish friends, why they celebrate Hanukkah. And we find this in the Maccabean Revolt. And Antichrist Epiphanes, he was a ruthless and erratic ruler. He was, he was properly, according uh, to tradition, he adopted the name Epiphanes, which means God manifest, but the Jewish people called him the mad one. The mad one. Antichrist made a decree. He said that he was going to outlaw all Jewish traditions, all rites of worship. He ordered all the Jews to worship, get this, Zeus rather than Yahweh. How do you think that played out? He, he, he wasn't trying to Hellenize the Jews, which simply means he wasn't trying to make them all Greek in their culture. He wanted to totally eliminate all traces of Jewish culture altogether. And of course, the Jews, according to the book of Maccabees, and historically, the Jews rose up and rebelled against his decrees. Atticus stormed the temple, stole the riches. He set up an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on the altar. And according to Jewish law, this would have been an unclean act. And by the way, nobody went into the Holy of Holies 
with sin on them. Nobody went into the Holy of Holies that was unclean, and a swine is the pinnacle of something that points to something unclean. Now the Jews, they voiced their anger, Antichus answered by butchering many and selling some into slaves. But then the Jewish reaction was this. From 167 to 166 B.C., Judas Maccabus, uh, the, the priest, Judas Maccabus, led the Jews into a series of victories so our Jewish friends today would celebrate Hanukkah because of these victories. After, vanish, after vanquishing Antichus, the Jews cleansed the temple and restored the temple into, in 165 B.C., and that is until Rome came to take it for themselves. In a future sense, the prophecy from the Lord Jesus was pointing to destruction, uh, really to the temple in 70 AD, but pointed back to this one man in this one time in history and pointing to the future. But could certainly point to a time in the future for you as the reader of something that is yet to come. Something in future that is yet to come when there will be a heavy persecution of Christ and his church. Something that we have not yet seen yet. So could Antichus be a figure of what would foreshadow the, certain, the, the future of Antichrist? Certainly yes. And there will come a time in history when there will be a figure, an Antichrist that will seek to deceive and speak many blasphemies against the Lord Jesus and his church. In 2 Thessalonians, this man is called the man of lawlessness. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4. It says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God of ob or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So listen in, church. Listen to me. Just like great tribulation was coming upon the early church, it will come upon the church today and is upon the churches today in the world. Now is the time, I would say, and I would challenge you, now is the time for the church to snap out of its slumber. Wake up, O oh sleeper, wake up. It is time for the church to snap out of its sleep and slumber. But most of us today are saying, it's not going to happen to us. We're okay. Are we waiting for a pre-tribulation rapture so we can put our feet up and say, does it happen to me? Listen in. I want you to hear, I want you to hear what Peter, James, John, and Andrew hear. Listen, and the early church. Listen to the urgency in the voice of the Lord Jesus. Let's, let's see if we can capture the urgency found in our Lord's voice. 
He says, let no one who is on the housetop, let him not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Now, more than likely, this roof was a house that would have had a flat roof on the top of it. The Jewish people would go up there, they would relax, cool off. And in Mark chapter 2, uh, we see them, uh, we, we see the roof rip, uh, uh, ripped off of, of a house. Uh, and sometimes uh, people would go up on top of the roof to discuss the law. They would go up there to relax and, and contemplate the law and talk about aspects of the law. They would go up there to, to reminisce, but there will be no time for that. Houses in the east, for the most part, provided a staircase on the outside of the wall so that the occupants, seeing the approaching danger, could flee without going through their homes. And here's the thing to think about. You won't even have time to relax. You won't have time to collect your thoughts. The destruction of the temple and the sacking of Jerusalem will come in such a hurry that you will not have time to even collect yourself. And let the one who is in the field not turn back. Listen to the urgency. Let him not turn back to take his cloak. It's the same idea. That there is no time to grab your coat that would keep you warm and protect you from the elements. Imagine it like this. There's a house fire in your home, God forbid, and the flames have encompassed the home, and you simply don't have time to go back inside. And I will stress this, as I have in the past. The urgency and the importance of salvation is imminent. That means it is now. There is a reason that Jesus gave us a great commission because it has always had the underpinning of being an urgent gospel. Urgent. As the coming of the Lord is imminent. Means he can come at any time. He can come before I dismiss in a few minutes. And so is the importance of the good news there is no time to wait. There is no time to waver. It is time for the church to plant its flag and to stand up for the good news and to share the gospel with our neighbors. It is time for us to wake up, to snap out of our slumber. There will be people that we know that will be dying and going to hell. In fact, there is a misconception that one can make it right, right at the last minute. I've even heard people say, when, I, well, when I'm on my deathbed, I'll, I reckon I'll ask, I'll ask Jesus into my heart then is the language they would use. You're not guaranteed that. You're not guaranteed that you'll even walk out of these doors today. You're not guaranteed that you're going to wake up tomorrow. Your friends and family have no guarantee that they'll even see tomorrow. I have heard it time and again. I've got, I've got time. I've got time to get saved. I've got time to make it right. Listen to what Jesus says here, this urgency. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants and those in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been since the beginning of creation and that God created into now and 
never will. Pray that it would not happen in the months that are cold. Pray that it would not happen in winter. Pray it will happen. It, it, pray that it will not happen. Uh, it, will, it will not happen when there is nothing to harvest. Right? Think about it. If you do not have time to go in for your coat, if you do not have time to reflect on the roof of your house, if you do not have time to go in and grab something in the winter month that has been harvested, it will be a horrible time. You won't even have time to go back in and grab grain. So pray that it doesn't come in the winter months. Pray that it comes when there might be something in the field that you can glean on the way as you're fleeing to Judea or to the mountains. You will not have time to grab even a handful of grain from your home. It would be best if the grain and crops are still in the field. Again, the idea of sudden tribulation is still prominent. And for those that are with, with child and nursing during this time, it will certainly be troublesome for them as well. Uh, let, let me read this verse. I don't want to revert back to mother and child and persecution of, of Christians. I want to revert back to that. But let me read verse 20 and then we'll, we'll go back to this, uh, this idea. Jesus said, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. It is because of his mercy that this tribulation would be cut short. But for the sake of the elect whom he chooses, he shortened the day. It is because of God's grace and his, and his mercy. These verses shared by Jesus is a, direct, uh, is, is a direct response or directed to the apostles or to the disciples to look back to the abomination of desolation in Daniel and then to look forward to the future event and for you and I, for the reader, to expect this persecution to come. I know it's not a lovely message. It's not a message of, hey, uh, things are all flowery in our culture today. I believe nobody in here would say, yes, they, everything is a-okay in our culture today. Nobody in here would probably say that. For the reader, it will be a continuation of persecution and great tribulation to come. There's coming such a tribulation in world history that it hardly has anything to compare it to. Now, I read verse 17. Alas, the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. And I immediately, I, my immediate thought was of church history and the Christian martyr by the name of Perpetua. Perpetua. I remember the story very vaguely, so I did went back and did a little bit of reading on Perpetua, the early church martyr uh, during uh, around 200, uh, 200 A.D. I remember the story vaguely, but what I do remember is that she was with child, meaning that she was, she was nursing a, a child when she was, when she was arrested. Uh, Perpetua died in the year of 203, uh, 203 A.D. by Roman sword, and her story is one of resilience under persecution and how Again, distress and danger, persecution, hardship draws one actually closer to the Lord. And how the danger of losing her life actually brought out a demonstration of who she was in Jesus. There's something about trials and tribulations that bring out the best in Christ's followers and the worst in unbelievers. Perpetua was a... Christ follower, 
She was a woman who was considered to be wealthy and closer to the end of aristocracy. She resided with her husband, her son, and her servant or slave by the name of Felicitas. At their time, they lived in a place called Carthage, which is the northern African coastline. Now, I want to say something about Carthage during this time. North Africa, particularly Carthage, was a powerhouse for Christian community. Now, we think about when the Bible describes Christians first being called Christians at Antioch, that Carthage would be known as a place where Christ followers lived out their faith. Think Acts chapter 2 community. This was Carthage. Emperor's service meant to annihilate Christianity altogether, thus leading in a great persecution. And amongst the first to be arrested were five new Christian or Christ followers who were who were taking part in, at the time, what is known as a catechumen. A catechumen is simply this. They were taking a class to prepare them for baptism. They were learning what it meant to be baptized or immersed. So they were almost in a new believer's class, training them for baptism. And, of course, in that class was one by the name of Perpetua. Now, whether it's by God's sovereignty, God's grace, God's mercy, she was moved to a better part of the prison where she was able to, uh, to breastfeed her child. God's providence allowed her to still supply nourishment for her child. And apparently her father had renounced Christ, wanted nothing to do with the Christian faith because he was able to bring the child to her so that she might be able to feed him. And time and time again, her father pled with, with her to just sacrifice to the, to the Roman gods and recant Jesus. In fact, he, quote, he said this, and I quote, Have pity on me and my gray hair. Do not abandon me to be a reproach to men. Uh, think of your brothers. Think of your mother. Think of your aunts. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. As if believing in Jesus was a thing of pride. Even in light of her father's plea, she stood, she stood strong in the Lord. The time had come before, uh, for her to stand before her accusers. This is something, remember, Jesus said would happen. And Perpetua and her friends were presented as enemies of the state. And they stood before the governor. Perpetua her, and her friends were publicly interrogated. And one, once they confessed to being a follower of Christ... They, de they de then denied sacrificing to idols, which was ultimately to sacrifice to the emperor as well. Then the governor turned to question Perpetua with baby in hand and her friends who were enemies of the state. Perpetua's father once again pleaded with her. The governor asked her again, is she a Christian? Is she a Christ one? And she replied, I am. So Perpetua and her friends were dressed in white tunics. They were brought out together one last time. 
They went into the stadium, as historically we know, wild beasts and gladiators rampled, rambled on the arena floor. The people in the stands, they demanded for blood. They wanted to see the blood of the Christians spilled in this arena. In fact, it reminds me of the words of the early church father, Tertullian, that said that the blood of the martyrs would be the seed of the church. They demanded blood. They released a heifer, probably a young bull, and it charged in the group. It hit Perpetua, flung her up in the air. She landed on her back. She sat, it up. She sat up. She, uh, she grabbed her ripped tunic and walked over to her once servant, Felicitas, and tried to help her up. Then they released a leopard, and the leopard just went at this group of Christ followers, began to rip their tunics, and their tunics were stained with blood, and yet... The leopard was unable to kill these early Christ followers. This was too slow for the crowd. They were irritated. They were mad. They wanted to see blood. They called for the death of the Christians. So Perpetua, Felicitas, and friends that were lined up, and one by one, they were slain by the sword. Brave for the Lord Jesus, even to the point of death. Even to the point where she knew she wasn't going to see her child again. There's story after story of Christ followers staying strong in Christ, even in the midst of adversity. What Jesus says here is so telling of the time. There will be no time to prepare when the Lord begins to enact his judgment upon this sinful world. Make your stand for Christ now. Stop playing churchgoer. And start taking up the mantle of Christ. Because I will tell you this. Even though the sermon title is this the Antichrist. The Antichrist is not your greatest concern. For those who are lost the greatest concern is the wrath of the Lamb. Your greatest concern is the wrath of God Almighty. In fact that is what we are saved from. We are saved to Jesus and we are saved from the wrath, the judgment of God. Many of us today, we use the term or in the adjective prefix anti to mean against. And this is true in the sense of the Antichrist being against Christ. But it is also true the term anti to mean in place of it could mean against Christ and in the place of Christ. And considering the words of the Lord Jesus, many will come in my name and many, many will say that I am Antichrist to be in the place of for many and against for others. And if, you, if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ or look, there he is, do not believe it. Jesus mentions that will be an abomination of desolation and it will be mirrored through history. And I mentioned the last time that we were in Mark that many people would claim to be the Lord Jesus. Since the first century to the 1960s, if you remember as we were working through Mark chapter 13 verses 1 through, you remember I stated this from the first century into the 1960s, there were 25 people who claimed to be Jesus Christ. Christianity Today issued an article a couple weeks ago that said that there were seven prominent people in the world right now who are claiming to be Jesus Christ or some sort of Christ 
figure. And Jesus said, false Christ will rise, false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. Well, I have told you all things beforehand. Historically, this has happened over the ages and is still happening now. There is a reason we are so enamored. We are so enamored with what the Bible calls Antichrist. Listen, I got to tell you, every president that I remember, I was born in 1974. Now, I don't remember, um, I don't remember many presidents. Um, I don't remember Nixon that well, uh, being that I was just, just a newborn. But I do, remember, I do remember Jimmy Carter, and I do remember from Carter, Jimmy Carter all the way up, every president that I ever remember coming into public office, somebody in the background said, that's the Antichrist. From Jimmy Carter to Donald Trump, there has always been a voice in the background that said, well, this one's the Antichrist. And now the people... Uh, that Jesus is describing here has more to do with just the Antichrist, but many Christs. The questions are many, right? Why are so many Christ followers so curious over the identity of what the Bible describes as Antichrist? And by the way, it is not our job to identify who this man is. Maybe it is that we become frightened of the unknown. Uh, maybe they do not believe that Jesus will come and remove his church from tribulation. As a people, we have looked here and we've looked there. and We have said, could this be the Antichrist? Can this be him? I remember in the 90s listening to these shows coming on uh, late at night that would say, this one's got to be the Antichrist and this is why. Again, when we know, when we love, and when we cherish the true Christ, no false Christ or prophets will ever suffice. So why is it that people follow these obvious false Christ? Number one, I will say that if a person does not know Christ, it's easier to follow a false Christ. But why are so many people drawn to false messiahs? Well, I've got two answers for this. Number one, they are searching for answers. This is a very telling answer, for it truly demonstrates how biblically uninformed people can be. People just do not search the scriptures as they should. People who need the security of what we call an authoritarian environment, they yearn for black and white answers, even when those answers are wrong, and cults and false messiahs provide such an environment as this. I think the Bible would say it's something to the effect of tickling ears. We know the answer and the remedy of brokenness and sin is, is found in, in Christ. As Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, didn't he? And secondly, I would say, not only are they searching for answers, but they are desiring a mystical God. People want something other than what God has given by special revelation, his word. I cannot tell you the times I've heard somebody say, I know what the Bible says, but I just want to know for sure. You can know for sure. I just want a little bit more. Tell me if God shows you something. He showed me something. 
What God wants us to know has been given. And what we do not know now, we will once we are with Christ in eternity. You ever heard the song, I'll understand it better by and by? Yeah. People want to experience God in a way that seems more tangible than what we have grown up with. And the reality is we come to the Lord on His terms and not ours. We just can't make up doctrine willy-nilly and have the Lord look at it, the King of glory, and say, yeah, that looks good enough to me, that'll pass. False Christ and prophets regularly guarantee some type of mystical, otherworldly experience with God. And if it doesn't line up with God's word, it is an abomination. It's following a God that is not one of the Bible. And following a God or a Christ figure that is crafted in the minds of men. So let me ask you this in closing. Could the Antichrist be in the world today? Maybe, maybe not. What is our concern with this figure over the years? Jesus warns of this figure that will be the epitome of blasphemy and then of false prophets. People who would rather build on a community on shaky ground of false community and a false prophet than on Jesus Christ and true gospel community. Again, two precepts we learn from Mark 19. Great distress draws us closer to the Lord. And Antichrist is not your greatest concern. Your greatest concern is who you are now in Jesus. Are you in Christ? Our greatest concern is whether we will suffer the wrath of God Almighty through the wrath of the Lamb. Or be with our Lord Jesus forever and ever. Only you can answer that. And that ending question on that scrolling video just a while ago was, Are you ready? Let's pray.